0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Live Through Jesus Podcast with Courtney Gilmore. On this episode, we'll be talking about the power of God, his power on heaven and earth, but also as it works through us. This is Joshua 10 through 12. Quickly before we get started, if you're new to Live Through Jesus, make sure you go to LiveThroughJesus.com and sign up to receive your free five-week Bible study over Abraham. There you'll also find blog posts that coincide with the teachings on this podcast and social media links, which is another way to keep in touch throughout the week. Okay, let's get started. God is Powerful We all know this. If we believe in God, we know that he has power that we do not have. But today, we're really going to see his power at work. In Joshua 10, the Israelites go back into battle. But in this battle, God demonstrates his power not only over the enemy, but also over the sun, the moon, the water in the sky. And he also shows us his power to work within us. Last week, we talked about how Gibeon tricked the Israelites into making a peace treaty with them. And the king of Jerusalem, along with several other kings, had already taken note of how the Israelites had defeated a couple of cities already. And now that the Gibeonites had made a peace treaty with them, they're even more afraid. Apparently, Gideon was a very large town. If you remember, it says that they had made a treaty with Gibeon along with three other cities. And so, Gibeon was like the the large city that was in, in control of all these other cities around it. It had its own king. They had their own army. It was a big city. And so, the king of Jerusalem saw this and he was like, if they, who are great warriors... Have decided not to fight against Israel, but have instead joined against them, then we're all in big trouble. And now that they have joined against them, if we go to battle with the Israelites, presumably they'll also go to battle against us, and we're going to have no chance against both of them. And so, Adonijah, which means Ruler of Jerusalem, Adonai means ruler and Zedek means Jerusalem. So the ruler of Jerusalem convinced the other Amorite kings of Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon to join against Gibeon on an offensive strike before the Israelites came with the Gibeonites and they fought against their cities. But when the Hivites, the people from Gibeon, saw these Amorite kings and their armies at their border, they immediately called for Joshua in Gilgal. Way back in the beginning, when they first crossed over the Jordan River, they made Gilgal their camp. And so the Hivites sent for Joshua in the camp and said, hey, we're about to be attacked. Will you come and help us? And Joshua immediately gathered his army with the assurance of God that they would be victorious and they set out for Gibeon. Now, what you won't read in the just the passage, but you can get when you read commentaries, is that this trip from Gilgal to Gideon was like 17 to 20 miles uphill. And they were leaving in the middle of the night. So it says that they traveled with all of their battle gear overnight, up steep terrain, for 17 to 20 miles. And, you know, at like three miles an hour, it would take you seven hours to get that far. And so this is a long journey and... They can't travel all that fast, you wouldn't think, especially climbing uphill and all of that. And then when they got there, when they got to the place, it's not like they got to stop and rest. They immediately had to go into battle and they fought all day long. And you would think that's hard enough traveling all night, hiking such a difficult path, and then having to fight all day, but this wasn't even an ordinary day because Joshua asked God to make the sun stand still so the day would last longer so they could finish the fight. (laughs) And so these soldiers are traveling all night, going on no sleep, exhausted when they get there, and then they have to fight until the sun goes down, which is much longer than it normally would be. And in addition to that, when they get there, they surprise the Amorites. The Amorites are not expecting the Israelites to come. They're hoping to defeat Gibeon before the Israelites ever get word or get there and can do anything about it. And so when they see the Israelites, they're like, great. Now we're fighting both of them, which is what we did not want to happen. And so they scatter. And they say, this made the battlefield like 30 miles And so they were going in all directions along a 30-mile area. So as if they hadn't traveled far enough, now they're chasing these people all around this area, fighting them. And as the enemy is descending, and it looks like they're about to get away, God steps in in a miraculous way. And sends hailstones to pelt these people to death. And so they're not going to get away. God is literally fighting for them, not just enabling them to fight this time, but he is literally fighting for them because otherwise their enemies might have gotten away. And so God sends hail to kill more people than they kill by their swords. And then the people that don't die are injured and they're easily slowed down and the Israelites are able to catch up with them and kill them. So as I said in the beginning, God has the power of the sun and the moon because he made them stand still. And he has the power of the water in the sky, hail, coming down to kill the people. He's already given us that much of a glimpse into his power in just this one day in this one battle. Listen to what it says in Job 5, 9, and 10. It just shows all of the power that God has over the earth. He removes the mountains, and they don't know when he overturned them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun and it doesn't rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear Orion and Pleiades and the chambers of the south. He does great things past finding out, yes, wonders without numbers. He does great things that we can't even understand. He has the power to topple a mountain, to shake the foundations of the earth, to make the sun rise or not. And then it says he spreads out the heavens. That means the sky he paints the sky above every single day, and then not only does he control the waters from the sky, but he controls the waters of the sea, and then he put all of the stars in the sky, and it's naming all of these constellations. God is powerful and we get to just see a little glimpse of it right here. God's doing this all the time, but we say it's mother nature or whatever. But right here, we see in this battle that God is making the sun stand still because Joshua asked him to, and he's making the hailstones come down to help his people in battle. And so God is demonstrating his power right here. And then Job obviously knows what God's power is, and he's relaying that to us. These things are not coincidence. They are not mother nature. They are father God. And so God has done this. He has sent the hail down to kill these people. They're fighting all of the people who have scattered everywhere. And then they get word that the king's are hiding in a cave in a town called Makeda. And so they asked Joshua, what do we do with these kings? They're hiding in here. And he says, roll a stone over the mouth of the cave, trap them in there, and then let's keep fighting until we're done. And so they fought all of the people, killed everyone. And when they got finished with the battle, they killed everyone that had not run to a fortified city. Then they address the king. So some of the people did run to some cities and took shelter there, but the Israelites are going to get to those soon enough. And so they don't mess with them. So they kill everyone that have come out for battle and not fled somewhere else for shelter. And now they go and they open the the entrance to the cave and they take these kings out. And when they get the kings out, Joshua says to the chiefs of the Israelite soldiers, go and put your foot on their necks. We're going to demonstrate to them that they have no power over us or our God. And you will take victory. You'll take victory over them and you'll take victory in your mind being encouraged what God can do. And so they did this and then they took the kings, killed them, hung them on a tree like we've heard them do before as a display for everyone else until evening. And then they took their bodies down, threw them back inside the cave and rolled the stone back in front of the mouth of the cave. And so the symbolism is that this cave that they were taking shelter in in life, they'll now remain forever in death. Then they go to this town, Makeda, and they kill everyone that's in that town. They are the ones that have harbored the Amorites, and so they're next on the Israelites' list. Then they go back to all of the towns from the places that these armies had come from. Now that they've defeated their armies, they're going to go in and they're going to capture their towns. And so it says, first they went to Libna, they captured that town, and then after two days, they captured Lachish and... Then because Gezer comes out to help Lachish, they also fight all of those people and they kill all of them. But it does not say that they went back to Gezer and captured it. It's just that they killed the people that were that had come out against them and captured Lachish. And then they captured Eglon, Hebron, and Debir. So all of these places were cities that were captured after they had already defeated their armies. When they got finished with all of this, they've gained control over the southern area uh, of the Promised Land, and they go back to Gilgal to rest for a bit. They've got a certain area under control, and they need a bit of a break. But while they're there, one of the towns in the northern part of the kingdom, Hazar, they hear about how they've defeated all of the south, and so they gather northern kings up in the area of Galilee, and they decide they're going to come down, and they're going to fight the Israelites. Now, this would be the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and then the rest of the Amorites, because, you know, the... Even the people on the western side of the Jordan were Amorites, so they've defeated some of the Amorites on the western side, they've defeated some of the Amorites in the south, and now there's more Amorites in the north, and so they're going to be fighting against them, and then there were Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem that had fled north, and so this would be some of them, and then there were was another group of Hivites that lived in the north, and they're going to be fighting them, so this is a lot of people. They say that this was a huge army and that they had many horses and many chariots, and they're coming out against the Israelites, and so they're outnumbered, and it looks like They should be able to defeat the Israelites. But God encourages them and he says, don't be afraid of their numbers. I'll give them into your hand tomorrow. You will gain control over them tomorrow. And don't be scared about their horses or their chariots because I want you to hamstring their horses, which means uh, cut the tendon in their feet and hobble them so that they can't get away, and then burn their chariots, this will be one way that you will defeat them. So you do not have to worry about them. They may look intimidating, but they're not. They're no match for me. You already saw what I did in the south, and I'm going to do the same thing in the north. Don't worry. Go out and fight them. And so these people were camped at the waters of Marab, and Joshua just went out against them, went ahead, and attacked them while they were there on their border. And he did exactly what the Lord said. He hamstrung their horses, he burned their chariots, and he fought them victoriously. Now, it says that I will give them over to you tomorrow, but I doubt that this battle took them one day. More than likely, it was just very apparent, they're given into your hands they're putty in your hands. You're going to go over there tomorrow. You're going to start fighting them and it's going to be obvious to everyone. They've got no way out. They're all just fighting until their death. The war is over, but there won't be any surrender and you're going to continue fighting until they're all gone. And so they defeated all of these people that had come out against them in battle, just like in the south when they had the war with all of the people that had come out for battle. And then they did the same thing. They went back over their cities and they began conquering all their cities. Now they started with Hazar. And when they got to them, because they were the leader of all of the rest of the people that had come out against them, they treated them much more harshly than anyone else. And so they killed all of the people living there All uh, killed their king, and then burned their city. This is the only city that they have burned other than the first two when they very first went into the land. And so he's making an example of them. They're completely done for, totally demolished. And then they just went back through all the cities, conquered all of them, plundered their cities, took their possessions and their animals. And so this has covered three chapters where we went through just a sweeping campaign of battles. And so it looks like, you know, they just went from one to the next. It all was quick. But we actually think this took about seven years from the time they entered into the promised land until they had kind of subdued the area. They haven't killed everyone in the north or the south and there's a couple of cities that they haven't taken control of, but the majority of the land they control now and they've killed most of the people. And that's where we'll pick up in chapter 13 next week. We'll talk a little bit more about the area that they have and the area that they don't. But For purposes today, we finished the big campaigns and we think it took about seven years because when Caleb gets his inheritance, he recites how when he first went into the land to spy it out, he was 40 years old. And then earlier in Deuteronomy, it told us that it was 38 years From the time that they had spied the land out until everyone had died and they went over into the land. And so that would make Caleb 78 years old when they went into the land to begin conquering it. And by the time that Caleb gets his inheritance, it says he's 85. So they've been in the land from the time he was 78 until the time he was 85, and that's seven years. So That's how we've come up with that number. Seven years of fighting the big fight. And then as we'll see next week, Joshua's going to begin giving the land to each tribe. And then they'll be responsible for fighting the people that are still living within their land. But they've done their major campaigns. And this has been about seven years. And through this time, only Gibeon has made a treaty with them. Everyone else they have killed that they've encountered in war. They've even killed the giants that their fathers saw when they went into the land that made them so afraid to go in and take possession of it as God had told them to. Not every single giant living in the land is complete, is dead But the majority of them are, and the ones that their fathers saw in the area that they saw are all dead. So now that we know the full story of their battles, I want us to go back and look specifically at a couple of verses and discuss them in more detail. And so this is Joshua 11, 19, and 20. And it says, There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All the others they took in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them, and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so I wanted to talk about this because. On its face, it looks like God hardened their hearts so that he could then go and kill them. And that's not the case. We know that their hearts were hard against God and the Israelites well before they ever even got into the land. God told Abraham, I'm giving your descendants this land, but not right now because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so that means their evil has not reached its full peak. I am giving them a chance to change their ways and do different. And I'm going to wait until they're just so evil that there's just no hope anymore. And by that time, then I'm going to let your family have this land. And so these are evil people that have been going against God for hundreds of years and That makes them enemies of God and enemies of God's people. They have no plan of stopping their evil ways or beginning to worship God. None of that is the case. The only question is would they make a treaty to save their lives? Not because they actually believe in God, want to, uh, you know, join Israel and live under God and his rules like Rahab decided to do. That is not the case. And so God said, their hearts were already hard. They were already not going to yield to me. But I don't want them to make a peace treaty with them like the Gibeonites did because it's not safe for my people to live among them because they'll adopt their evil ways and worship their gods. And so I need to make sure that my people have no pity on them. And the only way for that to happen is, is for their hearts to be so hard that they come out and attack the Israelites themselves. Notice that the only two cities that the Israelites attacked first were the first two. After that, the others came out against them. And when somebody comes out and attacks you, then you don't really have a lot of pity on them, right? And they don't even have any time to think. And so God said, I'm going to make their hearts so hard against you that they come out and attack you instead, and then you'll have no mercy on them. They deserve no mercy because they're not going to change their ways. They're evil. And so they're going to come out against you. You're going to fight them and you're going to kill all of them as I had prescribed in the first place. And so I just want to address that God is not hardening their hearts, making them evil, making them do wrong things just so he can go kill them. They're already evil. They already do not follow God and they have no intention of following God. If they wanted to do that, they could have done like Rahab and they could have said, hey, we want to live among you and follow your rules and live under your God. And they have no intention of doing that. They don't even have any intention of living there peacefully with them. They'll eventually draw them away from God if they don't do worse things. And so that's a little bit of an explanation of of that, just so we can understand a little bit better. And then the next thing that I want to read you is Joshua 10, 9 through 10. This is the part where the Israelites are traveling to the battle and beginning the fight. It says, Joshua, therefore, came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to beth Horon as far as Azekah and Maqueda. And so today we're talking about the power of God. And it's obvious that it is a miracle that God made the sun stand still. Zero question about that. We're going to talk about that miracle in a minute. It also is pretty obvious that the hailstones are not just a coincidence. But we'll also talk about that in a minute. But it's a little more subtle the power that God used to equip the people for the battle. But I really want us to focus on this because I want us to see how God is able to give us exactly what he needs for whatever it is that he asks us to do. God asked them to go into battle. He asked them to march all night long. He asked them to march up this steep terrain with all of their battle gear on. And that he asked them to, To get no sleep in doing it. And then to fight this battle for a longer than normal day. God required all of that from these soldiers. Can you even imagine? I can't imagine doing one of those things. But maybe if you're a good soldier and you have been, you know, training and working, you can travel that long, hard distance. And maybe you can even do it in the middle of the night. But don't you think that if most soldiers are doing that in the middle of the night, it is because they don't want to be seen, and so they're traveling overnight, but then when they get to the place, they're going to sleep, right, before they just fight their battle. Most of the time, that would be the logical strategy. But God does not allow that. He doesn't allow them to sleep. And then presumably, they would strike them at night the following night when they're unsuspecting and their guard's down and they can't see anything and all of that. And God does allow the Israelites the element of surprise because the Amorites were not expecting them to be there. And so that did help them, but he did not allow them to sleep at all. They had had no sleep this whole time and there's no way I would even be able to do what they've already done and not collapse And now God is requiring them to fight this battle. And so God asked a lot of these soldiers, but he equipped them to do it. He gave them the strength and the stamina and the endurance to do every single thing that he asked of them to do. And that is a miracle. There's no way that you could do that without the help of God. No person would be able to travel that distance and then fight this battlefield, maybe another, you know, 15, 20 miles that they're having to travel as they're chasing these people downhill and then still having to fight them. And God is equipping them the entire way. He's giving them the skill to defeat these people and he's giving them all of the energy and the ability to keep going until this battle is over. What a miracle. And this just shows us that anything that God asks for us to do, he will equip us to do it. If it's not in our personality, it doesn't matter. If it's not something that we're skilled in, it doesn't matter. If it is something that no human can even do, it doesn't matter because God has the ability to work through his people to allow them to do anything that he has asked for them to do. Sometimes he uses supernatural things and not us at all, like the hailstones or the sun, but sometimes he uses his people to also do supernatural things, or to just do things that are of, not of our own power. Maybe someone else is good at that, but we are not. And yet he still makes us good at that at that moment so that we can do the thing that he's called us to do. Moses told God this whenever God told him, hey, I want you to go into Egypt. And I want you to talk to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go and then lead my people out. And Moses says, um, no, no, I am not a good speaker. That is not something I'm good at. I can't do that. This is Exodus 4, 10 through 12. And he says, Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither before or since you've come to me. He's like, I've never been eloquent and nothing has changed. I'm slow of speech and I'm slow of tongue. And here's what God said to him He said, Who made your mouth? Who makes a man mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Go, I will be with your mouth and I will teach you what to say. We don't have to have the skills. That doesn't have to be in our personality. It doesn't have to be one of our gifts. It doesn't have to be something that we are talented in. No matter what it is, if God wants us to do it, he can equip us to do it. He can make someone that has no speaking ability to be an eloquent speaker, a persuasive speaker, someone that can get things done. He can take a person that can't hear, can't see, and he can use them for his kingdom. We don't have to be good by people's standards and we don't have to be good by God's standards. We don't have to have all of these wonderful qualities. We don't have to be intelligent. We don't have to be skilled. We don't have to have learned how to do this thing. God can teach us as we go. God can give us that ability. And so, listen to what it says in 2 Peter 2, 2-4. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, all of the things that we need in order to fulfill his call for us everything that we need to do in this life and everything that we need in order to be who and what he wants us to be. He's given us all of that. It says that we are now partakers of the divine nature. That means we have qualities of God. We are able to draw from who he is and become more of that here on this earth. Because we are his children, we've escaped the corruption of this world and we are partakers of his divine nature. He can give to us what he has so that we can now be that. And we know that God can do all things. And so he can make it to where we can do all of the things that he wants for us to do. Now, can we just ask him, oh God, I want to be able to fly, make me fly. And he just says, okay, no problem. <laughs> that isn't what that means. It doesn't mean that God will just give us supernatural powers for the fun of it. But it does mean that if he wants us to do something that would be out of our power otherwise, then he can give us that ability. It also means that if he calls us to do something that we normally would not be able to do, that he, we are able through his spirit to do those things. His Holy Spirit enables us. John fourteen twelve says, "...most assuredly I say to you," this is Jesus speaking, "...he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father." And then down in verse 16, he said, I will pray to the Father and the Father will give you another helper and he will abide with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth whom the world can't receive because they don't see him or know him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphan. So after Jesus died, he sent the Holy Spirit to live with us. So we have God with us every moment. And he can enable us to do anything that he wants for us to do. This says that we will do greater things than even Jesus did. And it's not because we're actually doing greater miracles than him, but because he's going to heaven and we're still here. We're going to continue to do all of these things. And the number is going to exceed the number of things that he did because this is being done through millions of people over thousands of years. And so the Holy Spirit enables us because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Lord. And it dwells with us and He can enable us to do anything that He wants for us to do. And so if you feel like God's calling you to do something today and yet you feel totally inadequate, completely incapable of doing this thing, then know that if it's truly God asking you to do this, He's going to equip you. He's going to give you whatever character trait, whatever skill, whatever ability that you need to fulfill whatever it is that he's asked of you, either momentarily or forever. Whatever it is that is his will for you, he will equip you for. So what an encouragement to see this, done through these people that day, shows us God's power as he works through us. And then to look at the power he had over the sun, the moon, and the hailstones. In Joshua 10, 11 through 14, is when he talks about how he cast down large hailstones from heaven. And there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with their sword. And then it talks about the sun standing still. It says in verse 12, Joshua spoke to the Lord in that day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Joshua? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. How miraculous this is. And then the other thing I want you to notice out of this passage is how Joshua asked for this in the presence of all Israel, it says. He asked for a miracle in front of people (laughs) so that whenever they saw this happen, There would be no explaining it away, no ability to say a coincidence, natural phenomenon, any of that. There would be no way to say these things because he had asked for it in front of the people. And so when they saw that the sun did not go down, they knew it was God. They had zero question. As if you would even really be able to explain something like that away anyway. But again, Mother Nature, these things happen over the course of history where we have some freak thing happen. And so they knew that that wasn't the case. And then also these hailstones, they didn't ask for them in the presence of other people. But we know that this is no coincidence because, yeah, it hails for sure. But is it a real coincidence that it held only on these people at this exact time as they're getting away and that it helped God's people at that exact time? That's not a coincidence. And so we need to to take note of both of these things. We need to make sure that when we see things that, yeah, they happen, but do they happen at that exact time in that exact way? that helps us at that moment that's God even if we don't ask for those things God works on our behalf and we need to notice when he's doing that and praise him for those things and then just think to yourself for a minute how much do you trust him do you trust him enough to ask for a miracle in front of other people that takes some guts Do we even believe that he can do miraculous things? Do we ask him, even in private, to do something miraculous? Maybe we ask him to heal someone, to help us in a certain situation. But do we ask him for miraculous healing that doesn't account for doctors and medicine? Do we ask him to do things that in all logic, would not happen, and the only way that they can happen is if he intervenes in the course of this person's life or in the course of nature. Do we ask him for things like that? Do we even think about asking him for things like that because they don't seem logical? Do we believe him enough to do those things? Do we believe in his power enough to ask for miraculous things. If you will ask God for tiny things and big things, for things that yes, happen in the real world, but you need to happen now for this purpose. If you'll ask him for those things and then wait and see what happens... Sometimes he will give us those things. Sometimes he says, no, that's not good for you. I'm not going to do that. But sometimes he says, sure, I would love to do that for you. I want to demonstrate my power. Then your faith will increase. You will see, oh, God did this one thing. So now I'm going to ask him for more things. I am going to rely on him for the things that I need instead of trying to get them in a normal way because I know that he's able. This will increase your faith in the normal things and also in the more miraculous things. And when he does do something completely miraculous in your life, you'll see his power and it will just strengthen your faith in him. And then when you tell other people, when you tell other people Either what you're praying before you ever even see God's answer, and they're aware. They asked for this thing, and then when they see it happen, then their faith also increases. And also, when you tell people even afterwards, if they know you and they believe what you're saying, then they will believe in the God that did it for you. In Daniel 4-2, Daniel says this. He says, I thought it would be good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. I thought it would help you to see what God has done for me. I'm going to tell you all of the things that God's done for me. And if you believe those things, then you'll believe in Him. Then you will be encouraged and you'll be able to see His power too. Yes, God works for us even when we don't ask Him. But when we ask him, and then we receive, we know it comes from him. And so we have to ask, believing that he can do all of the things that make no sense otherwise. So I'm going to leave you with these last two verses. Ephesians 3.20 says, To him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above, all that we could ask or even think according to the power that works in us. This verse tells us that he can do even more than you could ask for. He can do more than you could even think to ask for. And so we need to trust in that power, see all that he can do and believe in it. James 1, 5-8 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him who asks, ask in faith without doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he would receive anything from the Lord, because he's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways." It says, God gives liberally to those who ask and without reproach, without condemning us for not being wise, not having the qualities that we need in order to live this life in a good way. He says, ask and believe that God can give those things to you, but don't doubt, don't sit there and think, I hope God can do this now. We never know what God is going to do, but we always must believe that he can. He is all-knowing, and so he knows what's best for us. And so sometimes he tells us no, but we at least need to believe that he can do it, that he has the capability to do that. Otherwise, we shouldn't believe that we will receive anything from him. If we don't trust him enough to believe that he can do the things that we ask, then why should he give them to us? So be encouraged today that God has power over heaven and earth. He has power over the sun and the moon and the stars and the water and the sky and in the sea. He has power over everything in this earth. He created it and he rules over it, but he also has the power to work within us. And so all we need to do is believe in that power. And then notice it. Recognize when it's God. Don't explain it away by some logical, natural thing. And then tell others. Spread the word that your faith and theirs may increase. So that's all we have for today. Next week, the battles are over and the land is going to be dispersed amongst each one of the tribes of Israel so make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that episode go to live through Jesus read the blog post that's there for this lesson follow me on social media I'll be putting out verses from this lesson there and you can share those with others so that they can also see the power of God And then if you would like this written lesson, go to livethroughjesus.substack.com and subscribe there. The blog posts are there for free, and usually the beginning of the lesson is also there for free. And then if you want the full lesson, you will need to subscribe. It's $6 a month, and you'll get a lesson every week sent directly to your email. You can read this by yourself, study it by yourself look up the scriptures, get more in depth, or you can print it out and study it with a group of friends or people at your church. So lots of options. Do that if that's something that you think would benefit you. I also would love your support in that, but it's not necessary. This lesson is completely free and so is everything at my website. So Thanks and have a good day.